Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Aeronautical Society's webinar entitled UK as a Global Space Player. My name is Howard Nye and I've had the honour to be both the President-elect of the Royal Aeronautical Society and the Chair of the Society's Space Specialist Group. The Royal Aeronautical Society is a not-for-profit global learned society addressing all aspects of aerospace, aviation and space. Founded in 1866, it's the oldest aeronautical society in the world and has today a membership exceeding 24,000 persons across an international network of 67 branches and divisions. The society aims to support and maintain high professional standards in aerospace, aviation and, and space disciplines to provide a unique source of specialist information, act as a forum for the exchange of ideas and to exert an independent influence on the interests of aerospace in the public and industrial areas. It is in this context today that over the next hour, with an impressive panel of experts from government, academia, defence, policy and industry, we intend to discuss and explore the UK ambitions for space in the 2020s. Time allowing, the panel discussion will be followed by a question and answer session responding to questions from the audience. So please feel free to submit your questions at any time via the webinar, the GoToWebinar chat function. We aim to finish by five o'clock. And I should say that this event has been generously sponsored by Telespatio UK, to whom we extend our sincere thanks. And you can find a little bit more about the company by clicking on the sponsor logo on your uh, webinar. So, um, let me move on to the panels. I would like to introduce the members of our panel. You can see them before you. I start with Ian Annett. Ian Annett was recently appointed De Deputy Chief Executive for the project delivery at the UK Space Agency, with responsibility for overseeing the UK's major national space programs, including spaceflight, regulatory control, and UK GNNS, GNSS. Prior to this, he was Assistant Chief of Staff for Information Warfare and Chief Information Officer for the Royal Navy. His previous appointments include Joint Forces Command, where he was the Programme Director for Skynet 6, the Ministry of Defence Central Staff and the British Defence Staff in Washington, D.C. Our next panellist, Gabriel lf is Director of Research and Policy at Policy Exchange Think Tank, where he co-founded and heads the organisation's Space Policy Unit. His background ex expertise is in space affairs, foreign policy and defence strategy. Prior to this, he was senior defence analyst and consultant with a defence market intelligence company, working with global defence and homeland security industry clients. An associate of King's College, he holds a BA in War Studies and an MA in Intelligence and International Security. Our third panellist, Professor John Remedios, is head of Earth Observation Science Group at the University of Leicester and also Director of the National Centre for Earth Observation and Visiting Fellow of the Department of Physics in Oxford, Sub-Department of Atmospheric, Oceanic and Planetary Physics. Professor Remedias has been an expert advisor to ESA through ESA's Earth Sciences Advisory Committee and Future Technology Panel. He's chaired the UK Space Agency Earth Observation Advisory Committee and has played major roles in several satellite missions, both as science manager and leader of the principal investigator teams. Last but not least on our panel, we have Nick Shave. He's the Vice President of, for Strategic Programs at Inmarsat and member of the leadership team in the Global, Global Government Business Unit, responsible for engagement with Inmarsat's senior government customers and the delivery of strategic programs and partnerships. 
He also serves as co-chair of the National Cybersecurity Center Space Information Exchange, SPIE. Important for our discussion today, he was recently elected as the chair of UK Space, the trade association of the UK space industry. So I thank you all for joining us today. And before we get you involved in the questions, I'll start with a short introduction to set the scene for our discussion today. National investment in the space domain is very positive as it supports economic growth and provides high value employment. Studies by London Economics consistently show return factors ranging from £4 to £10 for every £1 invested in ESA programs, rising even as high as £17 in the case of ESA applications technology. Such investment provides nations with access to space infrastructure, applications and services upon which society depends, both in the civil and defence domain. It is also essential for fundamental academic research into our world and in the worlds beyond. And if you have the high return factor, it can play a significant role in post-COVID economic recovery. Following departure from the EU and exclusion from EU space programmes, the UK must now decide how to secure access to, and more importantly, influence satellite navigation programmes or other Earth observation programmes and other domains in which the UK has built up excellent experience and reputation, potentially by developing its own sovereign space infrastructure. As a direct consequence, the question remains of how the UK will fill the gap, the financial gap resulting from the loss of space industry contracts, valued at around 250 to 300 million euros per annum, originally funded by the UK contributions to the EU, but not registered or visible in the UK as investment in the space domain. Quoting the recent words of Graham Turner, the chief executive of the, U, of the UK Space Agency, Brexit has provided a real stimulus to get us to think about what we actually need as a country in space. Concerning UK's potential position as a space power compared with other nations, in 2020, the government increased the UK Space Agency budget, which does not include military space funding, by 10% to 556 million. Uh, this is still a very small fraction compared with NASA's 22 billion. A figure of 556 million includes the UK contribution of 464 million euros to the European Space Agency, which represents 9.5 of all ESA member state funding, placing the UK in ESA in fourth place after France, which contributes 26.9%, Germany 20.1%, 20 and Italy 13.7%. In comparison, in addition to its ESA contribution for, France, for 2020, France has set aside an additional 640 million for its national space program, bringing its total space budget to a total of 2.3, sorry, 2,300 million uh, pounds, a factor of four greater than that of the UK. So this is where we see the UK in comparison with other nations. The government declared its objective back in 2014 for the UK to capture 10% of the global market by 2030, estimated at that to be 400 billion by that time. The objective still stands, but the clock is ticking. And as the clock is still ticking here, I will now open up the panel discussion with the first set of questions. So, the first question is uh, to Ian, 
um, and will be placed to all of the panel members, one after the other. So the question is, how does the UK plan become open space in the 2020s? What needs to change and how can it be achieved? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Howard. And you, you've probably laid out quite nicely there <clears throat> a lot of the statistics that, um, that I would have used in terms of saying how does the UK actually want to, to plan to become a space power throughout the 2020s. You've already highlighted, of course, an ambitious target of getting to 10% of all global re revenues, um, marketing around about $30 billion um, in, uh, in terms of overall volume. Um, but I'd actually say, rather than try and compare ourselves to other con countries in Europe directly, we've got to be able to turn around and say, what problems are we trying to solve? We don't just invest in space because it's space. There's an element of you know, observation in supporting climate change. Uh, there's precision navigation and timing in order to support critical national infrastructure, resilience, or whether that be improved connectivity or difficult to reach uh, places across, um, across the UK. Indeed, as well as the societal benefits that we get from access to all of those services in space. So, so, so in order to reach all of those uh, different elements alongside the security ones, that's why we've set that 10% uh, target. I mean, I think in terms of ESA, then you'll have seen that our significant increase in contributions that have gone from 300 million pounds to 300, almost 380 million pounds annually um, at the last Council of, uh, Council of Ministers as well. And we see it not only as being an important economic benefit to the country, but also one in which we can actually leverage for security, uh, whether it be to access for space, whether it be to having assured access, uh, potentially sovereign launch, um, perhaps, but again, that's, that's really one for, uh, for MOD. But perhaps before I then hand over, one to leave you with, of course, is um, the evidence that supports this growing sector and the market of which we can take, particularly in small sats, you know, there were 400 small sats launched last year. Uh, that represented 80% of the total satellites actually launched, um, which was a complete flip from around about 2012, where they were less than less than 10%. And if you look at the amount of investment from private venture that's going in, again, an increase something like 26% or so over the last um, couple of years, it's definitely something that we can um, uh, grab a part of. Um, and use that to bring into the UK economy and help as part of that growth, as you say, post-COVID and into a um, beyond the transition period. Thank you, Ian. And maybe, John, we come on to you next. Um, how do you see uh, UK moving to become a space car in the future? Yeah, okay. That's a, so it's a very good question. I, I, a bit like Ian, I think I'm going to say, well, perhaps that isn't quite the question. I'm certainly going to suggest, I think, that space power means different things to different people um, but I think whatever the, you think the question is there's no doubt that if we're considered to be really influential and important globally in space um, there are there are two things one recognized to be doing something in space and I think we already are to be fair on that side I speak as a scientist but also someone who has worked in operational earth observation for quite some time um, I think the other part of that question is, is doing something in space. And to me, I think there's no doubt also that actually putting things into space, having UK uh, assets in space uh, is very important. Um, I talked a little bit to uh, one of our research councils, gave a talk to a general staff, and it was quite interesting. They all wanted to know 
if the Research Council logo was stamped on the side of the satellite. That was number number one. And I guess, you know, psych psychologically, but also uh, in truth, people want to know if there's a UK stamp on the side of something that marks us out as being amongst the major players. So I think actually having things launched into space, um, and particularly I would like to focus on actually having the satellites or the assets, whatever it is, in space. So if you're doing something on the International Space Station, is that a UK bit of engineering and a U, uh, that, that's productive in, our, in the way that we would recognise? And I would also pick up Ian's point to add to that, that yes, we like our space assets to be two things, I think, exciting and productive in this country. And I think you can't actually neglect one of those. We actually like both. Um, I think we definitely like exciting. If you were to ask the public to attend uh, 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 an event on space, um, is if you bring, oh, sorry, an event in general, if you bring space into it, you will get, I guarantee you, three times to 10 times the participants. So, so I think there's a great groundswell of public support for doing things in space, but that productive nature. Um, I'd like to just add one further comment, if I may. Um, I think doing something nationally, I've emphasized there as, as being important to show that you have the capability of doing it. And I think a question which we might come to later is, is that done through public satellites and uh, and government activities or is it done through commercial satellites? Um, but I think the other counterbalance is we can only do so much unless we want to spend a large amounts of money. One of the things I would like to suggest is you can be very productive with the money you choose to spend. It's not an absolute level of budget, although that is very important. Um, and that's International Alliance. So the correct placing of UK skilled engineering with the international context with the right partners is as legitimate a way, it seems to me, uh, to being that superpower as uh, doing it directly. But I would prefer the combination of both because I think that does it. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. It's Nick. Um... I'm speaking on behalf of uh, UK space industry. What's your view on what UK, what we should be doing to become a space power in the future? I think, uh, thank you, Coward. Yeah, I think there's a number of things already been said that I, I would reflect back as well. I think to set the context for this, we are at an inflection point at the moment. You highlighted in, in your opening uh, words uh, around, around the, the pivot, if you like, from you know, a strong focus on Europe, we still have that, and I think it's important to maintain that. ESA is going to be critical for us going forward. It underpins our science, you know, really inspirational, as John just mentioned, our science missions. Uh, we, we contribute a hell of a lot, and we get a lot of value out of that. Uh, we, I mean, the, the other inspirational point was was the great mission of Tim Peake to the ISS, you know, and, and that really captured the imagination of the public. Um, I think there are some really important things coming along, like like the uh, the launch um, UK launch capability that's being developed both in Scotland and in Cornwall and potentially even other places. Um, that there's a big global market growing there, um, but I think you know what do we we need to decide as a nation uh, how much uh, what is the balance between the ESA investment, national programs, and those international partnerships, um, be it bilateral or, or wider. Um, and I think um, the strategic nature of space being recognized by many countries around the world, you know, the tier one space powers, US, China, and Russia, 
and the other powers, uh, slightly lower level, you know, where do we want to fit in that? I, I fully agree with the panelists as well around um, we can't invest in everything. We need to pick uh, where we, what we're good at. And I think that intersection as as to where where is the UK real, UK's real strengths against uh, what strategic um, capabilities we need to meet government requirements. Um, against where the growing market is, is really key. Those, that's a, it's a three-way intersection, and that's really where we need to focus. Thank you, Nick. And Gabriel, move on to you. You, you might have more of a helicopter view, being uh, somebody involved in policy. Can you give us your views? Yes. Uh, thank you, Howard, and uh, thank you for having me on, on this panel, and uh, this is shaping up as a very interesting conversation. Let me just address more conceptual aspect of this particular question you know what is the uk um uk's plan to become a space power i don't think there is actually a plan to become a space power as john said space power means different things to different people if from my point of view yes there is no agreement on what space power is i think we're still locked into an increasingly outdated space policy uh, space power mindset uh, one that uh, sees space really as a, as a, you know, traditionally has been seen as a backwater of national policy and, and strategy. Um, space is being seen still through a, an utilitarian lens in terms of how it can add value to other things, how it can play, um, you know, a, a, a supporting role rather than uh, being in its own right an element of space power. Um, uh, sorry, an element of national power. So for years, almost a decade, the famous ambition that we've uh, mentioned of 10% of the global market has been the center point of uh, British space strategy and it's been useful um, as, a, as a driving figure but that's just an accounting target in the end it's a business target there is no strategic intent at play uh, and there hasn't been I don't think um, recently it shows that we are very far behind in terms of understanding the impact of space power on our strategic position as a country in the coming decades and the first, so the first thing that needs to change is that we need to recognize um, that space power is becoming, or indeed has become for some countries like China and the US, a fundamental element of national power and of the national interest. Because space is you know, increasingly at the center of future warfare and economy. It is also uh, starting to play a major role in foreign policy as well. And we've seen how space power uh, well, rather space issues, you can call them space power issues, but they played a, a role in the EU negotiations with Galileo. And of course, one web reflects many things. Well, one of them, I think, uh, is that uh, it reflects an important trajectory in UK-Indian uh, political relations as well. Um, so uh, whether space is marginal or central to our national interest over the long term, and again, it's worth when we talk about development of space power to really understand that we're talking about you know, decades. Um, so whether it's uh, marginal or central, um, it, it's an absolutely foundational question for what's next in UK space policy. We'll be confronted with this dilemma in a very acute way over the coming years, I think. Thank you, Gabriel. Um, we'll jump on to the second question. And if, I, if you could give me very short answers on this one. I'll start with you, Gabriel. Um, which specific space domains do you think the UK should exploit to develop its knowledge and capabilities and to extend its reach? Very short answers here. Okay, well, um, let me be, again, a bit provocative here and challenge the premise of the question a bit. I think it's 
again, like the same traditional, somewhat restricted way of thinking about UK space policy I mentioned before, meaning, you know, what are our niche strengths, where we can add value, what, what is our best, the return on investment. I mean, this is the thinking that killed the British rocket program in the early in the 1970s. And it's the kind of thinking that on one level is responsible and prudent, but on the other hand, uh, on another level, it can hold you back. So, um, you know, we talk about ambition in space, but are we really serious about it? If the UK space community doesn't make uh, a powerful case for space as a strategic national issue, if it only makes a business or narrow utilitarian case, then don't be surprised if we'll be having the same conversation five and ten years from now when the others, uh, when the other powers are involved in, you know, building bases on, on the moon and, and stuff like that. So the, the task for uh, national space power is twofold, in my, in my view, to build and maintain national economic and military technological advantage for this country in the decades to come, and to pre prevent Britain from becoming subordinate to others in key areas of the space domain. So that's why we need a comprehensive development of space power across the board. And not overnight, so let me stress that, but we need to choose a direction of travel, a, a kind of space power profile that we want to uh, develop over time. So it's, at this stage, it's an issue of how uh, we calibrate our efforts over the long term. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Gabriel. Um, I'll ask the same question to you, John. Um, in your yeah. particular view, from your view, what uh, space domain should the UK exploit? Yeah, well, I'm going to first of all agree with Gabriel. I think it's, he's right to be provocative. I think I think one thing I would say is just pick up this point about long term plan and strategy. Our space is a long term plan and game. You can't just do something for a couple of years and then go do something else. Well, not as effectively, certainly by a long chalk. So I think you need that long term view. We need to have a very serious debate, I think, about how ambitious and where we would actually put those uh, put those, you know, funds, but also that energy and effort. Uh, just to give you one, take one example, Tim Peake was mentioned, we, we've been really, you know, proud, haven't we, of having Tim in space and we've taken a lot of uh, inspiration from it. But I still feel there's a debate about whether we really are for human spaceflight as something the UK participates in or not. And I can see arguments on both sides, but you really want to make a decision. If And, and if things are going in the way uh, that, that people are going to be doing things much more actively, say on the moon, through the International Space Station or whatever its successor might be, then these are big questions. Um, in my own area of Earth observation, I think this applies to a lot of the sort of information services like NAV, uh, like comms. Uh, I think the question is, is perhaps less ambitious, but no less important. It's, it's how much do we want to do our thing? How much are we going to make sure that we have the capabilities we think the UK wants and needs, rather than just um, trying to join in somebody else's ventures and hope to to reap something of the dividends of that? Um, and just one observation, if I may, if you if you work internationally, I think you are much more successful if you can already say to people, this is the asset I bring to, this is the information, the data set that I bring to the table. And that's why they then think, ah, oh, we want these guys in. So I think there's a real ambitious strategy there also in order to make sure we actually have our capability and our dreams that people can follow. Thank you, John. Um, my next question is uh, to Ian. Um, how should the role of government and public bodies change in order to define and deliver a national space programme? Yeah. We have military, we have the UK Space Agency. 
should we be looking to emerging or what, what needs to change? Should, should we see a, a procurement agency being pre prepared based on the UK Space Agency, based on the CNES or the ESA models? What, what do you think? Yeah, thank you, Howard. Um, so it's really difficult because there's so so much of me wants to just respond to that that the Gabrielle has just been talking about and and John, but I mean it's all inde indelibly linked together. So when you talk about recognition of how important space is and how we treat it nationally, you know we've already declared it as critical national infrastructure in 2015. We've already recognised the domain of space as being a domain of warfare as well. Um, we're already involved, of course, as John will know, in the human spaceflight. We've got a program to to support that. But all of those demonstrate the breadth of our interest and also of our aspirations to be involved. But that also informs actually the question that you've asked and said, how do we govern that within the UK? Um, I think that governance is key. You know, we recognize that the ubiquity of space across all government departments, across society, across military, means that we need to have a better governance structure um, in, uh, in, in place. Um, and, you know, we're, we're getting after that, of course, through cabinet committees and the National Space Council. The two things that I think we need to associate with that, though, two things really important, one of which is competence and the other one is organisational clarity. And that speaks to, you know, uh, how do we prioritise all of those things that we've talked about. In terms of the former competence, we need to make sure that we've got the right level throughout uh, government throughout the UK in terms of academia, in terms of engineers and technical ability to not only produce and put these things into space, but also to actually analyse and work out where our investment goes from within government as well. I'm always saying we need more technical people. And the second bit about organisational clarity for me is about setting our right ambition for space. You know, we can do it against national security objectives of security and protection um, against prosperity and knowledge and, of course, and global influence. But underneath all of that, is it launch? Is it satcoms? Is it, you know, um, so, so getting those two things right, increasing our competence, getting better governance, uh, but also actually speaking to better organizational clarity, setting out those ambitions for a national space council and a national strategy so we can actually prioritize. That in a nutshell is, is how I think we should, be, we should be moving forward. Thank you very much, Ian. Gabriel, um, your views on that particular point, the role of government and public bodies, how should they be evolving? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I completely agree. I think uh, sorting out UK space governance, which I would uh, say it's a bit of a mess, is absolutely the number one priority if we want to have any kind of um, serious space strategy. Um, I would say that uh, I, I would make three points here. So number one is that we need a central brain and policy-making authority that can really see the full picture of UK space activity and space-relevant activity across government, and that can direct policy effectively. There are many parts of government that touch on space in various ways. Uh, National Space uh, Council, of course, and then the Cabinet Office, uh, MOD with the Space Directorate, Space Command, BASE, which is a huge department, BEFRA, for Earth observation uh, requirements and so on. Um, the Department for Transport, um, uh, which sponsored the Special Industry Bill, uh, CAA for regulation, FCDO and DIT, of course, which have their own views on our uh, on the international aspects of our space relationships. Uh, the Satellite Applications Catapult, which obviously you know had a very curious role in in in, in the One Web story recently, so that, that that's interesting. Uh, space research uh, projects in academia often tied to 
uh, UKRI and so on. So we badly need to uh, we badly need to cohere all, all of this much better. Um, so for now, I think it makes most sense in in practical terms to reinforce the role of the cabinet office, build a strong space secretariat for the National Space Council, perhaps with the National Space Advisor, whatever you want to call it, uh, as a single point of contact uh, at the heart of, of government. Um, and I think that would be a welcome uh, development. Uh, secondly, I think we need to find a way to have more convergence between civil and military space, uh, civil and military uh, sides of, of UK space. Uh, we cannot afford to have two separate space policies in this country, given our uh, you know constrained resources and where we're starting from at this point. We need the joint approach. Um, on delivery, I think uh, two, two quick points to make. I completely agree with, with Ian. You know, there is a, an issue of, of, uh, of technical capability in the, in the agency for understandable historical reasons. It's, it's hard to develop that if you don't have you know, the, the big programs on which to, to train people and to develop that expertise around. So it is vital to find ways to bring in more um, expertise on space procurement, uh, perhaps from the from the private sector, and there are solutions um, uh, in in, um, in that quarter. On um, so on space procurement, on understanding technical requirements, and so on. Um, the government must be a smart customer, you know, for space. Otherwise, it cannot understand its own needs and uh, wouldn't want uh, wouldn't know what to ask for from uh, industry. And indeed, it can get played by industry, if I may uh, use a term of art. So. Um, Secondly, the agencies should have, I think, um, and this is again something to, to put out there for, for discussion, its own, uh, should aim to have its own uh, space research center on the model at a smaller scale, of course, um, of NASA's in-house labs, and obviously the French have Toulouse and so on. Um, I think this is how you grow that expertise in an institutional way, by building uh, projects in-house, by growing a community of experts within within government uh, structures. This is how the agency itself will graduate from being just a, a convener and a facilitator to really becoming a driving force in UK space policy. Um, and, and finally, just to make this point, um, a reform of, of the agency. You know, I mean, as you said, Howard, you know, I'm, I'm sort of uh, working at the coalface of, of politics in, in Westminster, and we can discuss here in this seminar and other many seminars, various policies and capability lists uh, all day long, but um, uh, from a realistic point of view, what really matters if you want a strong space policy uh, as a result in the end is institutional heft. You know, what is the institutional, you know, backing for that space policy? So as a two-star organization within a very big department, the, the, the agency is constrained. It needs uh, more seniority. It needs more autonomy, for example, of a, of a, you know, of a pay so it can attract talent and make, you know, do that uh, efficiently and quickly, uh, it's got to be able to win the Whitehall wars. So, um, you know, in my mind, there is no doubt that it needs to be moved out of, uh, of base, uh, perhaps into the cabinet office, but that needs to be done very carefully. And um, yeah, just as a final point, we need to think in terms of the big, those big programs that have to anchor a national space program plus that delivery capability, because it can't build space power on the back of, uh, you know, smaller experimental projects or small scale uh, programs. Thank you, Gabriel. Very interesting. Um, John, um, your view on... Uh, um... Sorry. On uh, how industry, uh, sorry, academia and industry should uh, contribute in defining a national space program. So we now move from government to 
academia and industry. And John, if you could start with academia. Yeah, sure. Very related, really. Um, I mean, I think it's fair to say that in my, in my view, there's been a strong association actually between academic uh, institutions, industry and government, um, you know, right through our, our work in, in the UK. So this is not a new thing, I think. The, but I think what the question is at the moment is how you sharpen that. So academia do contribute to the debate about the directions of the space programme, both at the, the high level and, and the, the, you know, the, the practical levels of which missions, etc. But you know, we, we probably need to sharpen that uh, that ask and that engagement. And we have a space academic network now. We also already have national labs that work in elements of the space program. So we have not only the satellite applications catapult, but we have uh, places like Rutherford Appleton Lab. We have my own organization, NCO. We have the National Physical Laboratory. So academia does cover not just the, the, the blue sky discovery, but, but also serious operational activities. Um, but as I say, we need to sharpen that voice. I think we could, we do work with industry quite considerably, um, but you find tend to find the work tends to be really in projects, specific projects. And I think there is there are grounds for a for a larger, uh, more more encompassing debate. I think discussion between the, the sectors to actually uncover what it is that we share in common or where we need each other in order to progress the, the UK's ambitions. Um, and I, I suppose I, I'm brought to mind where, where I see it happening, I see very good examples, but just to maybe pick a couple of particular things. Um, I think an academic view, but I think various industry would, would share it, that, that there's a lot to be gained for really niche UK technologies, you know, the, the things that are essential to have in a space mission. And often, if you're looking into the future, those are need to be co-developed. They're too far down the line for industry. Um, they're challenges to, to be overcome that you haven't yet got to. And I think that perspective can actually be technologies that might be in play in five to 10 years. They're not that long away, in fact. Um, uh, th second thing I think is an uh, is area which we tend to neglect in the space world, but is data and data intelligence. You know, the, the, the stuff you put into space from a, from a, you know, whether it be inspirational, whether it be exciting, whether it be pragmatic and productive, you have to use the results of that. People, you need to communicate that, you need to distribute it, you need to make it present and visible. These days it's about digital media, it's about knowledge economy, you know, it's about data infrastructures. And I think actually something academia and industry could do very well together actually and probably have a common aim with government in some respects but need to get it recognized by government is we actually need a much better infrastructure for sharing our data moving our data around adding in the assets from navcoms so that we actually have a you know an infrastructure that's fit for the net for this century so i think there's some really good stuff we could but we haven't done it yet i would say and i think there's a lot of work to do um in that guys thank you very good, John. Thank you. Um, Nick, one SU is the industry role um, in defining a national space programme, but is there a risk that industry is taking work away from uh, academia in certain domains? Uh, should we reinforce the, the collaboration between uh, industry and academia, as, as John is saying? What's your view? I, I, I initial reaction to that uh, how it is I don't think we're taking things away from academia I think we we are working there's many companies in in the sector you know in UK space the trade association we have 130 companies as members and 
I'd say probably half of those at least, probably more, actually work with academia at some level um, for research or for um, you know development of low technology TRL um, uh, technology and so on. So there's you know and we we work very closely together. There's for example organisations like the Space Growth Partnership where we're working together with academia, industry, and government, um, you know, different parts of government to try to grow uh, the 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 opportunity. Um, uh, I, I would say I think how industry can play an important role is aligning investment priorities between industry and government and academia, so that we we know where we're going to we should invest uh, from from our, our our different companies. Um, so so prioritisation of that would be really good. I think you know industry is key to in in terms of building capabilities. You know for addressing some of the things that, that Ian said earlier on, like climate. There's the whole ecosystem issue. You know, space is critical. We've talked about PNT or GNSS and and comms and and, and in EO, all of that together. How that enables uh, intelligent transport systems going forward, connected vehicles, um, you know, 5G. All of these, if you like, really important areas where a lot more a lot of growth is going to come, um, and where we where we place our bets as a nation is, is going to be really important. I think. Um, the other point I make is on the skill side um, and how industry, academia and government need to work together. And we do already. We have a, uh, a skills institute um, uh, uh, running uh, across the space domain. Um, and I think there's a lot of good coordination there that can help build that uh, cadre that we need uh, for these larger programs going forward. And the final point on this one is is around clusters. You know, we, we've um, looking at how we can, you know, it's a big initiative on leveling up in the UK of how we can widen the sphere of influence and impact of space across the country. And I think uh, industry is playing an important role there, uh, again, within, with, with academia in, in building those, those clusters, you know, all around the country. Thank you very much, uh, Nick. And um, the next question is, how can we utilise, we mentioned this earlier, utilise international partners, partnerships to achieve UK objectives? Um, I'll start off with you, you, Ian, if you wouldn't mind. Thanks, Howard. I mean, again, that's, a, that's another question that demands really a, quite a longer answer than we've actually got. But I mean, it's at every level, isn't it, really? It's not only it's multilateral agreements that you've got in the likes of um, ESA, it's those bilateral ones that we have as well. So the Australian Space Bridge, um, a number of bilaterals and MOUs, of course, that we have with the um, with the US. So you've got to use them all at every level that you possibly can. Um, that's about, of course, sharing of knowledge um, and understanding of risks um, and, and also building that community of trust so that you can then operate in space together as well. But certainly each of those, I mean, ESA being obviously one of the key ones um, for us is that that leverage that we can get by membership of ESA and the funding that we get. You've already mentioned about the, the returns that we potentially get out of ESA through, you know, for £1 in, £10 or £17 in some applications area, area back. But also it's the ability for us to, to, um, to, um, to push forward UK programmes. So the Commercial Space Transportation Service, for example, is very much one that's been Pushed by the UK, but actually within the bounds of um, the bounds of uh, Visa as well. And let's not forget, by by improving our trust, our relationship with those nations, the US, for example, and the Technical Safeguarding Agreement allows that um, exchanging of technology that would normally be constrained other other means as well. So 
So, as I say, it's both a multilateral element through the likes of ESA, but also through those bilateral arrangements we have that improve that trust, allow that exchange of data, and also give us much better leverage into those nations who've probably got better access and more data in space that we can get our hands on to. If you don't mind, Ian, I'll throw one additional point in. Uh, the question of uh, a few, uh, potentially a sovereign um, navigation system for the UK, international partnerships will play a role, right? Well, I, th I think you've got to, again, this is, I mean, the, the way I'd respond to that is about um, how you define your resilience within things like position, navigation and timing. It's at multiple levels. Some, element, some elements of that might be sovereign or assured, or it might be open. Or indeed it might come from other areas, it might come from terrestrial areas as well. So, so there is room for of course engagement at the multinational level for PNT, but also of course we've got to recognise that some of that we might want to retain as national control as well. So it's not a binary one or other, it's a mixture of all I think, to give you those layers of resilience that you would need in something like PNT. Thank you. Nick, your views on international partnerships uh, from the industry point of view if you wouldn't mind? I think I'd echo a lot of what Ian said there, and um, you know, you need uh, national capabilities, and we need to be. There's a there's a term that's being used a lot now, or, uh, which is being, uh, called burden sharing. And uh, you know, how do we develop capabilities that uh, some of our um, allies, perhaps in, in the more military domain, would be interested in, um, so that we we can play a role as we develop that strategic, you know, that space power side. Um, but I think uh, you know, so so there's that side. The bilateral is very important, and I think you know industry's uh, had some uh, good success. We're working with you know, on some some bilateral programs. Uh, we've got some companies in the UK that, that have exported really well to to a number of countries bilaterally. Uh, and finally, on on the international piece as well, I think you know there's there's structures out there. Uh, obviously, ESA, as I said earlier, remains really important um, to industry going forward. Um, but but there's others like the Five Eyes uh, partnership in the intelligence world, which can play a role in in uh, in space and is playing a role in space and, and wider. And 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 organisations like NATO will, will remain important. And you know they've also recognised space as an operational domain. So there, there's there's all of those things. I think final point from an industry perspective is, I think the UK could capitalise more. Uh, UK as a nation could capitalise more on the industrial links that we have. Uh, with other nations you know some of our companies in the UK already have extremely strong links or big customers in other countries and how could we leverage that more is something I think the strategy should should look at very good um, last question from my list so far this um, what do we see as the next steps and milestones for the UK to become a space power what, what needs to be done and when so Ian, I start off with you, if you don't mind. I look, Howard, it's, it's kind of everything that we said this afternoon, isn't it? But I think at the strategic level, it's recognition that space as a domain helps across all of those levers of national power, whether they be diplomatic, military or economic. And it's having the maturity to understand that and play them as each other and use that, uh, use that domain. Therefore, you know, um, kind of recapping on what I've said, and so that's about governance and getting the governance right. So you can play it across those levers of national power seamlessly, if you like. So uh, top down, whether it be through a space council or through other bodies, alignment of policies, as, as Gabrielle has talked about um, within, uh, within the UK. For me, 
that's I think the next uh, kind of next steps that we need to get after. At the tactical level, uh, or, or rather sub-strategic, I'd say it's about making sure you've got an end-to-end -end capability. You know, we're great at satellite applications, we're great at building small sats, um, we're really good about the data piece as well as the analysis. We've got some fantastic minds. The kind of one thing that we're trying to get after at the moment, of course, is small sat launch. And I'd say that is the SRO for the program. But, you know, I think that having that end-to-end -end capability of being able to design, build, make, launch, and then exploit is a really, really important factor for the UK. So I think you're on mute, Howard. Okay, beg your pardon. John, uh, if you'd like to give your views on the next steps. Masters, yeah, I, I'm going to be sort of quite pragmatic and near term in some respects. Uh, I'd like to see us really aim to launch a couple of UK national missions, whatever in whatever guise they are. Um, I think we already do a good job. We're actually much more proactive already in getting our scientists and our uh, industry on top of some missions in the international context. But I, I'd make that plug for UK. We're doing a good job with truths, but you know, small sat, maybe that combines with those intentions. Let's do something sooner rather than later. Uh, like to pick up on what I said about data and data for infrastructures, I think, you know, uh, highways, motorways, you know, all those sorts of analogies, data pipelines, they're really important these days. So actually having a coherent strategy towards data, what do we do with the results of those space assets? And, you know, we've got compelling problems. We've seen that the, the, the space is already involved in, in helping with some of those compelling problems. But, but climate action, absolutely, you know, it's right there, isn't it? We've got to be doing something with the space data. We're experts. We're world leaders. Let's make it count. Um, there are other areas as well you know, that we can do. Um, and then I just want to echo um, Nick's point about clusters. Um, you know, Leicester's done a lot in space, uh, if I can be, you know, sort of point to our heritage for a minute. But there are other places like Strathclyde, like sorry. So we, and where, where those places have existed, uh, uh, you know, we've done really well. But what's as important is Nick's comment about levelling up, about being seen to be doing things in parts of the country. I mean, in Leicester, people know that we do space. And they know the UK does space because not only have we got the university, but we've got National Space Centre, we've got Space Park Leicester, we've got industry. It's really clear that actions are happening. I think I was interested in the Chancellor's comments about changing the criteria. I think we need to campaign in the space area for 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 value for money in our terms, not value for money on somebody else's terms. You know, we, it's it's a it's a strategic business, it's a risky business, but I think we've shown in the industry and and academic government we can make it happen if we put the money in. But often it takes too long to get money out of the system to actually make these things happen. So, you know, we could be doing something bigger in smaller satellites now. It'd be a starting point. It wouldn't be the full story, but it takes too long to kick something off, and I think we should really go for it. Thank you, John. Very clear. Uh, Nick, your views on the next steps and the milestones. Um, I think I'd, I'd break it down into three in summary, uh, really, Howard. And um, I think, you know, we are. I think I think it's important we do get that national space strategy in terms of a, a of a of a direction of travel, and and we need a cross government view there. And I think industry and I would argue academia and others in in the sector are are looking forward to that. And I think underpinned, as, as Ian said, with the National Space Council and the advisory structure around that is is, is really important going forward. I think um, 
I think the second point coming from more an industrial perspective, um, you know, we need to bring in more investment and I think we need to get the city, uh, you know, there is a massive big market out there and some really interesting um, opportunities. And I think, you know, that's something that we haven't really capitalized on enough here. How can we get some investment funds to be looking at space and investing more in the UK? A lot of investment going in on in the US and some other parts of the world. Let's really focus on that because I think we're not capitalizing on that enough at the moment. And the final point, fully agree with John. Um, let's get some UK satellites up there. Let's get some sovereign uh, infrastructure uh, in place uh, in, you know, in the selected areas. Um, you know, like a, like you know, as Ian said, the PNT system. How how can, what do we need uh, to meet meet mix together with a terrestrial network um, so that we can achieve that resilience in in PNT going forward? Position navigation timing. Sorry. Thank you, Nick. Very clear. Gabriel, your views on the next steps from the helicopter point of view. From my helicopter. <laughs> Um, I'll, uh, I'll just focus on uh, mostly on the on the politics and, and strategy on, of all this. First, reminding uh, that uh, we should really sort of focus on that uh, space power mindset, and this also means actually more work educating British lawmakers of Parliament um, on space, as well as the uh, public opinion on the connection between uh, space power and the national interest. For too long. You know, we've had these conversations within a, a rather sort of a limited space community, and uh, you know, th this is a, a bit of a closed world. I mean, we have to project these uh, ideas and these concepts much uh, more widely. Um, and uh, people need to we need to put this message across uh, to the public about the vital impact of space on British sovereignty and freedom of action in the decades to come. So we need to bring the people on side. Space must be seen as a national endeavor, not just a cool thing, an interesting thing that makes a little, you know, or a big, uh, at times, a splash or story, um, but really a national endeavor. And, um, you know, we need to have that mindset that uh, positions us on a trajectory to become a leading space nation in the 21st uh, century, which, which, by the way, is, 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 the, is the theme of a very good uh, paper that came out uh, I think last week by uh, from, from Athena the uh, consortium and much recommended um, um, secondly I think in an ideal world um, in policy terms we would need a, a first a proper national space review that would then lead to the national space strategy I mean in terms of how we do strategy in this country it's it's, it's uh, again uh, complicated story but the national space review would have to look at the agency which have to look at what is the national space asset base what are our interests and so on to have a full net assessment and then you would have the national space strategy coming out of that uh, in, in my view and the national space strategy needs to respond to the national interest and needs to be based on a clear-eyed assessment of the global picture as well which again is something that we haven't really sort of brought into the, this discussion, which is focused purely on on, on the domestic situation and what uh, the, the issues are confronting us here at home. But uh, UK space uh, future will be a function of global dynamics. So we need to understand uh, allied and rival capabilities, but also the geopolitics of space. So I would like to see a national space strategy that reflects a deep and serious and mature British uh, thinking on space power and that aligns it 
with the country's great uh, grant strategy. Um, and also, very importantly, as part of that strategy, I think we need to address uh, at some point, start addressing the question of, of ESA's future and Britain's future in, in ESA, because there is a dynamic between the EU and ESA. Uh, the EU is aiming for strategic space autonomy. Uh, what does that mean for uh, you know the future value of ESA to the UK? And it's very true. We've got the statistics about you know uh, how much we've um, benefited from ESA in the past when we were you know full members of, of ESA and uh, and the EU. I mean, we're still full members of ESA, full members of the EU, and able to play in the big uh, EU-funded ESA programs like Galileo and, and Copernicus. Um, I mean, Copernicus is still obviously uh, under negotiations in terms of our relationship uh, going forward. But the point is, there will have to be um, more thinking about that, and there will have to be more thinking about how we might uh, want to um, rebalance our international uh, space industrial posture, um, because we have been tied, uh, we are tied very strongly into the uh, European uh, space ecosystem. Uh, on the civil side, and of course, on the um, with the Americans on on defence. But um, you know, <laughs> after Brexit, I think there needs to be uh, a clearer reconsideration of, uh, of of really the mix of those relationships. Um, and um, finally, I think it's uh, critical to develop in the long term a space industrial base that <clears throat> can sustain and deliver critical UK eyes only or five eyes only projects. Um, and this is very, very important because, uh, you know, not having this, this ability um, in the first place prejudges our space alliances and predetermines our strategic options going forward. That's it from me at this point. Thank you very much, Gabriel. Um, I'm just looking through a number of questions which are coming up on the chat. Um, we've, there's one, uh, what does the panel think about the balance between ESA programs and national priorities? I mean, I think, um, I think Gabrielle's mentioned this. I think uh, maybe Nick, you have a view on this. Sure, I think, um, sorry, ESA's, um, you know, I think it's been about two thirds-ish for the last probably 20 years, um, uh, maybe even more in terms of how much of the UK Space Agency's budget goes into ESA. Um, I think that's the really important um, aspect. Where do we uh, and how do we invest in, in ESA? And, you know, we've, uh, so that we can build capabilities, continue obviously with the, you know, the, the important science and inspirational missions, but also underpin something, some things that we want to do nationally and, and could help us in terms of burden sharing, as I mentioned earlier. So I think that's that's got to be the key. What is that balance? Do do we keep it at the same level? Um, then we need to increase the national spending. That would be our initial view from an industrial perspective. Maintain what we do now and add add national capabilities. I think you know, given the importance we've discussed, the space is strategic. Uh, that's that's what I think we need to do. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, and I think um, Gabrielle's point about the the future role between ESA and the European Union. I, I don't know whether John, you have views about how to uh, continue to exercise and to um, 
maintain this extraordinary knowledge we have of earth observation and data analysis and so forth built up using essentially Copernicus and, and everything else and how are we going to get this going forward? Now we've yeah, lost... that's a very good question. I think uh, we still await developments, don't we, which will which will guide that forthcoming strategy. But um, but I think a, a couple of points just to be very clear on that. Uh, I mean, I think one is that we do need to recognise that 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 we did have a previous strategy, which was very much Europe engaged in the Sentinel satellites, not not necessarily not just at sort of policy level, but scientifically a lot of those instruments are you know products of our combined ipr with with other scientists in europe who came up with these systems um but the perhaps the point we really should be you know focusing on is there are some things we will want to do collaboratively and internationally and we could not without vast expense do them ourselves by ourselves so we need to take ESA seriously in that regard we have very good relations with with the people who really do the work and we have very good outcomes, I think, uh, on the whole, but not always. And I think one of the, the things we do need to develop is that if we are going to be in ESA, we will need to be clearly influential in ESA. We will need to be saying, you know, we as the UK are one of the things that distinguish ESA from being an EC body. We col collaborate with ESA, part of our collaboration environment to collaborate through them with the EC, etc. But but what is it about ESA that, that the UK wants to see it doing, and will it have that say? I, th I think it's. I think that's that's the question. I think we will, but we have to look at it in those terms. Thank you. Uh, there's another question, um, maybe for Ian. How close do we think the link between expensive military space and civil space is? How close should it be? Thanks, Ed. Just, be, just before I get to that one, I'd just like to come back on some of the ESA points as well, if, if, if I may. I mean, I think that um, not only do we need to look at what we put into ESA, we need to look at what we get out of it as well. And again, we've already talked about the leverage that we uh, that we get. And also it's the access to the other programmes, whether you look at, you know, our participation in Artemis, whether you look at Rosalind Franklin, whether you look at, you know, there's a um, CSTS I've already mentioned as well. So it's actually what we leverage out of ESA. And in terms of ESA or EU, I kind of don't see it as a binary choice. I mean, it's in many similar ways. It's between kind of NATO and EU military mission. Kind of two of them exist. There are tensions between them, but it's not necessarily one or t'other. And of course, the membership of both is very different. So I think we've got to look at that in terms of, you know, the balance of both membership and what we get out of ESA as much as what we put into it. Um, but in terms of the closer expensive military vice, cheap and cheerful civil, I think is probably the inference there. Then, uh, then again, we've, we've, we've got to make sure that as, as capabilities become increasingly dual use, um, you know, for military, they want to find better ways, uh, more efficient and effective and cheaper ways of, say, for example, having communications on a global basis. You don't necessarily need to have a nuclear-hardened, uh, fully in, a military-encrypted system for sailors, airmen and soldiers to be able to communicate with their families or other bits and pieces. So, so you need to look at that blend of capabilities that you have, whether it's dual use for communications, whether it's dual use for Earth observation. Um, and, and so to kind of look at how they can work better together. I mean, there will be bespoke sovereign requirement capabilities that the military require um, because they need to conduct high-end war fighting and they need to you know, secure their either communications or PMT at that end. But much of it, there hasn't been traditionally 
the capabilities have been single use. So they would very much look as much as we do, you know, from the technology transfer perspective, to find more effective ways of doing it. So the overall government spend can be less across both military and so specifically military, but also, you know, we get the benefit of that through civil as well. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, I'm sorry, we're coming just about to the end of our session. Um, maybe I could ask each one of you just to say one short phrase, which a message you'd like to bring to the public and to us uh, before we close the panel. And I'll start off with uh, Nick. Okay, thank you, Howard. Hi. <laughs> Very difficult to sum all that up. We've covered a lot of ground. Really interesting as well. So, enjoyed uh, debating with my panelists, fellow panelists. I think, um, in terms of what space is a great opportunity, it's truly inspirational, um, it's strategic, and it's a growth engine. So, we hit a number of things that the government needs. Uh, let's be ambitious. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, John, your last message. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess if I was one last one, I think about bright minds, it's about bright, you know, intelligent, clever things we can do uh, to make the, the most of our investments. So really would want to see us going for, for bolstering that and investing in it. Excellent, thank you very much. Gabrielle, your uh, last pitch. Yeah, I think, uh, look, we need to take space very, very seriously um, at the highest levels of, of government um, to look at it as a strategic national capability. There will always be concerns uh, about affordability, but the, the real question is, you know, can we afford not to do this? Can we afford not to uh, build a, a strong future for the UK in space? Very good point. Thank you very much. And lastly, Ian, your uh, last pitch for today. All of the words that I would wish to have used have already been used by the panellists already. So kind of very much a personal view of mine rather than necessarily a government one is we've got to be bold, we've got to take risks and, um, and we've got to act swiftly. Excellent. Well, I thank you very much indeed. I'm sorry we have to draw this to a close now. We're already a couple of minutes over schedule and I know that uh, some of you have uh, events and activities to follow up. Um, so I first wish to thank you all very much, uh, Ian, Gabrielle, uh, John and Nick, very much for your participation and engagement and for, your, for openly expressing your views. Thank you very much indeed. Um, there will be a video of this uh, webinar. It'll be posted on, a, on the YouTube channel of the Society, and I think everyone who's, in, who's registered for this event will be receiving an email in due course. Um, I should uh, advise you that the, the Society is planning to hold a two-day two -day conference entitled UK in the 2020s and Emerging Space Power, and it's, uh, the idea is to take um, today's topics further. It's over two days, and all being well, it's it's scheduled to take place in four, four Hamilton Place in London on the 19th and 20th of May. Um, it'll be sorry, it'll be a public uh, sorry, a public uh, event open to people to actually get together and discuss things. If we're allowed to do this in May, uh, as according to the COVID questions. Um, before then, there is a space panel discussion. Um, 
as part of the upcoming Society Air Power Conference on the 7th and 8th of December 2020. And you can see details of both events uh, on the events calendar on the Society website. As we have now reached uh, three minutes beyond the planned um, timing, uh, I wish to thank all of you in the audience who joined us today and uh, for your questions. I'm sorry we couldn't answer all of them or pose them all, but uh, I'd like to thank Telis Baccio once again for supporting and sponsoring this web webinar. Um, and last but not least, I wish to thank all the members of the Society Executive Team and the Society Space Group who've been involved in the preparation and implementation of this webinar. And with that, we now close down the webinar and I look forward to your participation in our future events. I wish you all good health and a very good evening and thank you very much indeed. Goodbye.